four years, we're treated to the uh, current spectacle of a presidential campaign. Each of the candidates uh, tries to convince us in his own way that he's the man that can lead us out of this uh, mess of our making. And uh, it struck me as I listened to uh, Mr. Anderson the other night that that's essentially what the Gospel of Matthew is concerned with. Not that the Lord Jesus is stumping for himself, because as we know from the prophets, he didn't uh, promote himself, he didn't lift up his voice in the street, he didn't advertise himself, he simply went about doing the ministry that the Father had called him to do. But uh, what we do see in Matthew's uh, gospel is Matthew himself presenting Jesus as the man that the world has been looking for. He's the world leader that will set everything right. He's the king uh, who has the right to rule. And as we've seen, what Matthew does first is point back to his impeccable family connections. The Lord came through the right line. He was part of the royal line of Judah, connected lineally back, uh, back to, to David, the king who was promised that he would be the first of a line of kings that would, that would culminate in Messiah. And uh, secondly, he had uh, an unimpeachable character. Uh, we saw that both in, in the temptations and in the, uh, the baptism, when the Father said from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is, he has he's lived his life on the right uh, basis. I, I find no fault in him. His character is flawless. And then the temptation itself establishes that what the Father said was, was correct. The Son has the character to rule. And uh, then in chapters 5 through 7, the Lord uh, presented his platform, which was uh, in itself very unique. If you listen to the men today who were, who were campaigning, most of their platform is circumstantial. It, it's based on changing circumstances. They're, they're going to do something about the inflation rate. They're going to solve the problems of employment. They're going to bring the hostages home. They're going to stop our dependence upon Middle Eastern oil and so forth. These are all circumstantial things. But the Lord proposes to change character, change men. And we all know that's the problem. There's something wrong with people. And if the heart of man could be changed, then all of these other circumstantial things would uh, they take care of themselves. But the question that always comes to our mind when we hear a politician or when the Lord says he can change character is, can he really do it? You hear a politician speak and your immediate response is, oh, well, it sounds good, but can he pull it off? Does he really, does he have the authority and the power to get things done? That's the question. And as we've seen beginning with chapter 8, that's what Matthew establishes for us, that Jesus and Jesus alone has the power to do what he says he can do. He, Matthew begins by describing his miracles. And the keynote through these chapters, 8 and 9, is the word authority. The scribes and Pharisees said, this man speaks as one who has authority. And then we, begin, we, we see that authority as it works out in in changed lives as the Lord begins to heal and correct and, and set things right, cast out demons and heal lepers and do things that no one had ever done before. And their comment is, this man has authority, unlike anyone else. And then beginning today in chapter 10, we see his authority demonstrated through those that he sends out. So the question that Matthew is answering here is not so much uh, the Lord's power 
to do things directly himself, but the question is, can God change people through me, as he proposes to do? He sends the, the apostles out with power to do what he had done. And it causes me to, to think, what is it that the Lord wants me to do? And uh, can he give me the power to do what I know I should do? All of us want our lives to be useful. I do. I don't want to drift through life and waste my time and, and energy and, and the strength that God has given to me. I want to use it in some way so that it's purposeful. But can I do it? Am I able to help others? Can I produce change as the Lord Jesus did? And it's that issue that the Lord, that Matthew is dealing with here in chapter 10. A long time ago, I think I told you the story of the man who, uh, who went to the hospital to to see a friend of his who had had a mild heart attack and he was recovering nicely, uh, but they had him under an oxygen tent. And uh, as, as, as this man began to minister to his friend, he noticed that he was having trouble breathing and he began to pull on the collar of his pajamas and he was obviously struggling for breath. And So he put his ear down to the uh, oxygen tent as close as he could and and he heard the man whisper, John, you've got your foot on the air hose. <clears throat> and I uh, think sometimes that's the way we go about our ministries. We want to help, and, and we're trying to do something encouraging, but we have our foot on the hose. But the Lord wants to show us how our lives can have maximum impact. And it's that that Matthew is concerned with here in chapter 10. Now we need to back up to verse 32 in order to get the context, uh, chapter 9, verse 32. And as they were going out, behold, a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him. And after the demons were ca demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, Nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And so you have this dissonant note. Uh, the Lord comes, and he begins to minister to people, and he starts uh, his healing and helping uh, work. And people start responding, and it's like a great symphony. Order has been restored to things. And uh, then there's a sour note that's introduced. When the Lord said uh, to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. And the scribes said in their heart, This man blasphemes. So you have a, a note of discord introduced into Matthew's gospel. And that note grows with intensity, in intensity and frequency until it drowns out the symphony and all is disorder and, and they crucify him. See, and, and here we see uh, the introduction of that note. Oh, he just does it because he's demon-possessed, they say. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages despite what they were saying. He continued to go out teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into, into his harvest. Two things I want you to see. First, the enormity of the need. The Lord realized that uh, the need was universal. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed a leader. And he felt uh, compassion. His heart of love went out to these these people. They were in desperate need. He wanted to reach them. He wanted to touch all of them. But at the same time, he realized that his departure was imminent. He realized that, uh, that uh, opposition was gathering. 
and it would be only a matter of time before his life was taken. So he has an infinite job to do, and he has three and a half years to do it. How will he get the job done? And Matthew tells us in chapter 10, he appoints 12 people. He chooses the 12. Now, it's interesting. It's an interesting question, I think, to ask yourself. What would you do if you had a task of this size and you had a limited amount of time to get it done? How would you approach it? Well, I think what I would do is organize gigantic evangelistic crusades and start passing out tracts and, and try to gather the largest possible number of people at one time and rent the Goodyear blimp and put the four laws on the side of the thing and fly it over New York City and... and uh, try through mass campaigns to reach people. Now, I'm not against mass campaigns. They have their place. But uh, the Lord's preoccupation throughout the rest of his ministry is to prepare these 12 men to reach the world. And it's not because he wasn't concerned about the masses. It was exactly because he was concerned about the masses that he began to train the 12. And he gathers these men under, under him and he begins to instruct them. Now, chapter 10 tells us first in verses 1 through 4 of his call of the apostles. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax-gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the, Can the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. It always strikes me when I read these names how little we know about these men. We know virtually nothing about them because what they did was unimportant. Certain facts are given to us, and as we read through the Gospels, we pick up other details, but uh, essentially we know very little about them. James and John and Peter and Andrew were fishermen. We knew they were involved in some kind of fishing enterprise with their fathers and apparently were doing quite well. So uh, the counterpart today might be a successful businessman or professional man of, of some sort. But beyond that, we simply don't know anything about their vocation or how they were trained or what sort of childhood they had. The first six that are mentioned here were all friends, evidently. They knew each other. They were all raised in Bethsaida. So they had contact with one another, and the Lord was working through this network of friendship that existed. We don't know anything about Philip. Bartholomew is the man who's known as Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. We know very little about him, except he was Philip's friend. Thomas is called Didymus another, in another place, which means the twin. So he, may, he had a twin brother, apparently, and it might have been Matthew. Some feel that uh, because he's linked together with Matthew, Matthew was his twin brother. Matthew, we know, is the author of this book, the tax collector, the publican. And it's only in his gospel that he mentions that he's a tax collector. The other gospel writers, out of uh, pity for Matthew, don't uh, mention that fact. James, the son of Alphaeus, we know nothing about him. And Thaddeus, who's called Judas elsewhere who apparently changed his name to Thaddeus because Judas' name was held in such uh, disrepute after he uh, betrayed the Lord. And Simon here, who's called a Canaanian. A Canaanian was a, was a super patriot. Uh, he would today be an extreme right-wing radical type. 
he was concerned with the defense of Palestine. He hated the Romans, and it's interesting that he would be in the same group of men with Matthew who would be an extreme left-wing radical. He had already sold out to the Romans. And yet these two men are linked together. And then there's this man who's known as Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed the Lord. No one knows exactly what Iscariot means. It, it might mean a man of the city, Iscariot, and if so, he would be what we might call a city slicker in contrast to all the other apostles who were more urban, uh, more rural types. Uh, there's another possibility that the word Iscariot comes from the Greek word uh, Iscariot, which means uh, it's a little dagger that certain revolutionaries carried, uh, people who were in the Palestinian underground, they were assassins, and there's every possibility that, uh, that Judas might have been a member of this group, and if so, he, he might have been paralleled to, or might have been coupled here with Simon the Canaanian because they were alike in their political views. But we simply don't know. The interesting thing is we just don't know who these men are. Very little is said about them. Very ordinary people. And furthermore, they were ill-prepared for the task which the Lord gave to them. Now, we're accustomed to thinking that before anyone can be involved in ministry, they have to receive an awful lot of training. We have to send them off to seminary or Bible school, and they have to learn uh, where Cain got his wife and how to reconcile sovereignty and free will. And, and is it really true that God can create a rock so big he can't lift it? And all these uh, hard and difficult questions that we have to understand before we can present the gospel to people. Now, I'm not at all against seminaries or Bible institutes. I'm just saying that it, it just strikes me as very significant that the Lord took these men and sent them out before they were at all prepared. Because we learn best in the context of a ministry. The Lord puts these men to work almost immediately because he knows that's how they'll mature and grow. There are certain essentials that they need to, to have before they go out, and he'll tell us what those are. But from our standpoint, these men are really very poorly prepared. But what they do have, according to verse 1, is his authority. The Lord summoned the twelve and he gave them authority, power over unclean spirits. And that's what made them unique. It wasn't their training or their background or their personalities or their experience or their wealth. It was his power. They went out dependent upon his authority. And that's what enabled them to do what they did. And that's what empowers us. It's not our intellect or, our, or the way we dress or where we've been educated or what sort of degrees we have or how powerful our personality is or how articulate we are. Those things are all a part of our personalities and our background and experience and they shouldn't be despised. But we're not to count on them. That's, that's the point. That's not where our, our authority comes from. Our impact upon people, it comes from the Lord and our dependence upon him. I went into the kitchen the other day. I was going to make one of my world-famous smoothies, and I got out uh, Carolyn's mixer and started uh, breaking eggs into it. And I looked around the kitchen, and I, it struck me for the first time all the gadgets that she has in her kitchen. You know, there's this blender, and there's a garbage disposal, and there's a dishwasher and there's an electric range and there's a refrigerator and there's a, a toaster and, and oh you know it's amazing a blender a mixer all kinds of stuff all of which are designed to do a particular job you know you don't cook eggs in the 
toaster. I guess you could, but it would sure make a mess. Uh, there is a special function for every one of these these uh, pieces of apparatus. But what struck me was that the power is the same in all, and uh, the thing could be marvelously tuned and and ready to go, but if it isn't plugged into the wall, it's non-functional. And that's what the Lord is saying to us. Training means nothing apart from the power of God. Lack of training in no way should inhibit or frustrate you, you see. Lack of a powerful personality or a pleasing appearance. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, these disciples were not a group of ignorant men. I, I don't like to see them portrayed that way because if you read the Gospels, you, you understand they were not ignorant men. Some of them may have been. The point is they were just common men. They were every type of man conceivable. But what made them effective was not their background or their training. It was God himself in them. It was the authority, the power that was derived from the Lord's presence. Now, after this call, then, the Lord gives them his charge, and that continues on through the rest of the chapter. Let's begin with verse 5. <clears throat> These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this doesn't sound like the Lord. Why would he exclude one section of the population from the gospel? He says, don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Just go to the Jews. And literally what he says here is don't go by the way of the Gentiles. In other words, don't go north to Syria. Don't go west to Phoenicia. Don't go south to Samaria. Don't go east over into Decapolis where the Greeks live. You just stay in Galilee. So he's really limiting them to one geographical area, Galilee. Just go there. Now that seems odd because the Lord himself had a ministry to Gentiles, the Syrophoenician woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. He was concerned about all, all sorts of people. Why would he do that? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. He settled at this point for a limited objective for perhaps two reasons. One, he knew the apostles were not yet ready to go to a Gentile world, and so he was limiting their ministry in that sense. He was protecting them in, 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 somewhat. But secondly, he realized that Israel must have, again, an opportunity to respond to the truth. They were, after all, the people that God had called to be a light to the Gentiles. It's because God loves the Gentiles that he called the Jews. It was through the Jews, Paul says, that the oracles of God came. They were the instruments by which Scripture was written. They were the people who were designed, uh, who, who were called to be missionaries to the Gentile world. And they had failed in that mission. And so now, uh, in keeping with the Lord's way of doing things, he gives them another chance. He again calls to Israel to take their historic place in the scheme of things. Be God's messengers to the world. And that's the reason why he came to his own. But uh, when his own did not receive him, then the call went out to the Gentiles. And as a matter of fact, in this very chapter, later in verse 18, the Gentiles are mentioned as those before, uh, as people before whom the, the apostles would, uh, would testify. So he did have in mind the, the Gentiles. But for right now, he's settling for a limited objective, God's people first. 
But the thing for us to notice is that the call was to go to lost sheep. He's already described the people around him as sheep who don't have a shepherd. That's what he means by lost sheep. They don't have anyone to lead them. And that's the problem with the world today. They don't have a leader. Everyone is saying, particularly now in this uh, election year, I'm the leader. But we all know that none of these men are the leader that will set things right. They need a leader. And the Lord Jesus is the only leader that can do things properly. I was at the courthouse the other day, and some of you know this big fellow that works out down there. He's a professional football player. We were chatting about things, and I... Uh, uh, he was talking about a man that he knew who had been such an outstanding leader and had, he said, drawn the, the uh, team that he plays for, the team together. And uh, I was, had been for some time looking for a, a way to, to talk to him about spiritual things. And I said, well, Larry, uh, so we all need a leader, don't we? That's what we crave. We're looking for a leader. And Larry, big grin, creased his mouth and his eyes twinkled and he pointed up and he said, right, we need a leader. And there was a point of contact, you know, I knew exactly what he was saying. He, he knew the Lord as well. And what struck me, here's this big fella, he needs a leader, and here's this little skinny guy, and I need a leader, and we're all like that. We just need a leader. Someone to lead us out of this mess that we've made for ourselves, you see. And uh, that's, that's where the Lord has sent us, the lost sheep. Now, you may not think of the employer who's given you such a hard time or, or the man next to you on the work, your workbench who's so difficult to work with or your non-Christian neighbor as a lost sheep. They may look like anything but a sheep, but that's the way the Lord sees them. They're just lost sheep. I told the men some time ago of uh, uh, one of the most interesting funerals I've ever had was uh, for a group of... Uh, for a, a fellow that was killed in a knife fight in San Francisco. He rode with a motorcycle gang and had become a Christian, and I'd gotten to know him, and, and they asked me to conduct the funeral, and so we met on the side of a hill, and all these guys pulled up with their big choppers and their leathers, and they were the strangest-looking guys I ever saw, and, and uh, had an opportunity to, to preach the gospel to them. And afterwards, uh, this uh, strangest-looking man I think I've ever seen walked up, and he said, you know, he said, I have a putt and a pad and an old lady, but I don't got no peace. And I thought, now there's a lost sheep, if there ever was one. See? And you look at these people and you say, no, 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 they don't have any interest in spiritual things, but they're looking for a leader. And that's the mission on which the Lord has sent us, as well as the apostles. Go, he says, to the lost sheep. Secondly, he tells uh, the disciples here the ministry they are to perform. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Essentially, that's, that's their ministry, and that's ours, to make proclamation. The word preach here doesn't mean to preach in any formal, official sense, but it simply means to make proclamation. And the proclamation is that the king is coming. The king that's been, been awaited all of these years. The king that, that was promised to Eve, who would uh, crush the head of the serpent. 
The king that Abraham looked for, the king that David looked for, in Psalm 110, David refers to one of his sons as his Lord. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David knew that one of his sons someday would be his Lord, his Messiah. And all history was waiting for that time, you see, when the king would come and he came. And now Jesus says to the disciples, go out and tell the world that the king is here. And that's our message as well. Really very simple. We, we tend to complicate things. But the Lord uncomplicates matters. He says, that's the message. Go out and tell people that the man they've been looking for, the leader who will set things right, is here. Go out and tell them. And heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse lepers. All of these things were, these miracles were signs of Messiah's coming in the Old Testament. The prophets had predicted that when Messiah came, he would, uh, he would do these things. And now they were to go out in his power and perform the same, the same act, acts. Now, we're not called today to heal the sick and raise the dead. Those were miracles designed to authenticate the coming of Messiah. But today, our ministry basically is the same in that we're called to heal the hearts of people, to set wills free that have that are impotent and unable to change, to, to, to deliver people from the habits that have, that have gripped their lives and destroyed them, from the fear and the despair and the dread the misery that can be alleviated when we simply proclaim the truth to them that the King has come. And we, when we submit to him and his rule, then we have the power to change. That's the message that they're to proclaim, the ministry they're to perform. And then in the last clause of verse 8 and through verses 9 and 10, he says, Freely you received, freely give. And that's the keynote of this kind of ministry. We ought to be givers, just giving of ourselves, serving, loving people, caring for them, because we've received that kind of care and concern and love from God. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. In other words, let the Lord provide for your needs. You don't need to take uh, two staffs in case you break one or an extra set of shoes. or Don't take extra money in your billfold. Just go and expect the Lord to meet your needs. Now, we need to understand this was a special provision for a special time. This is not always the Lord's uh, directive later in Luke 22, the Lord says, When I sent you out without uh, money in your purses, how did you fare? Says, very well, we did very well. And the Lord says, Now, all right, take money for your purse. And take a staff. And, and do you have any swords? And Peter says, We have two. And the Lord says, Okay, that's enough. Let's don't go overboard on this thing. But it's all right to take a sword with you. And, and uh, so they go out on a different basis, you see. But here the Lord wants to teach them that he can provide for their needs. And that's what the Lord wants us to learn that our ministry must be dependent upon him. So this is the third thing that he teaches them, a dependency on him for everything. We need to depend on the Lord for the direction in which our ministry moves, who we talk to, the speed with which it develops, the size that it becomes. We shouldn't be preoccupied with numbers. God may call you to work with one person for years or a large group. That's God's problem. 
We don't. We shouldn't count noses or or measure our ministry by the number of people that come to hear us or the number of people that in whose lives we're involved. The size of that ministry, the speed with which it develops, every aspect of it is dependent upon Him. He's the one who charts the course for us. And then finally, in verses 11 through 15, he speaks of the priority they, they must maintain. And into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and abide there until you go away. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let the greeting of peace come upon you. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. When he, when he refers to worthy people here, he's not thinking of innate worth. He tells us what he means in verse 14 by a worthy uh, village or a worthy house. It's those who receive you and heed your words. In other words, anyone who will listen to you is worthy. And if people will not listen to you, they're not worthy. And the Lord says, if they don't listen, then shake off the dust of your feet. Now, that's a, an Eastern uh, cu custom, and we're unaccustomed to that sort of thing here. And he, he's not, it seems harsh to us, but in those days it was not. It was simply a way of saying that this person absolves himself of responsibility or that house, or that town. He would shake the dust off of his cloak or off of his, his shoes as a witness against them to show them that he had done what he was supposed to do. And now it was their responsibility to act and not his. He had done what he could do. See. So there is always an element of accountability in the gospel. We need to let people know that we're not playing for nickels and dimes. It's life that's at stake. And they need to take seriously the message that we deliver. But we're, we should not be harsh and unloving toward those who reject the truth. But what the Lord is saying here is that we need to spend our premium time with people who will listen. And if people won't listen, we can still be their friend, but we shouldn't belabor them with the truth. Jesus says, if you go into a house and they listen to you, abide there. Spend time there. Teach them the Word. Help them to grow. Bring them to, to, to maturity and then go on to another place where people will listen to you. But don't waste your time trying to teach people who aren't, aren't willing to listen. It's exactly what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. The things that I have committed to you among many witnesses, the same commit thou and trust thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, find someone who wants to believe the truth and wants to grow and spend your time with them. And that's the priority that Jesus himself maintained. He was always kind to people who rejected him, although hypocrisy brought, uh, usually brought uh, down his wrath as a way, I think, of exposing their hypocrisy. But uh, he, he simply wouldn't spend time with people that weren't interested, but he would invest uh, a great deal of time in people who were willing to act on the truth. And that's the priority that we ought to maintain. Now, here in these just these few verses, the Lord gives us a pattern for our ministry. He tells us, don't worry about your lack of training. Just start acting on the truth that you have. Take what you're learning here on Sunday morning and in Bible study fellowship and in your home Bible classes and the women's studies and the men's study and start, start transmitting that to other people. 
Don't worry about your lack of training. Don't be concerned about your lack of uh, personal force and power. Count on the Lord. He's the one who's, whose power makes everything possible. And spend your time with people that want to listen. And teach them. Help them to grow. You know, there are about 300 of us here this morning in this, in this group. If each one of us this year took seriously this charge and we spent our time with one person next year, perhaps someone you led to the Lord yourself or some young Christian, immature Christian who needs help and, and encouragement to grow, and you spent your time with one person, and then after next year, the four of you, the, the, the two of you then uh, multiplied yourself and you became four the next year. You know how long it would take to evangelize the city of Boise? Nine years. Nine years. You can figure it out on your calculator when you go home. And we could evangelize the state of Idaho in 12 years. Less than 12 years. It would be something like 153,000 disciples. Uh, pardon me. It would be a million. 530,000 disciples in 12 years on that basis. You see why I say this is the Lord's method? When the Lord had an infinite job to do and three and a half years to do it, he started training men to multiply their ministry in the lives of others. Crusades are important because they can shake people loose and create a climate for evangelism. But the heart of the ministry is always a quiet, ministry of discipleship carried on by God's people, just like you and me. And if we want to reach our area for Christ, this is the way to do it. This is the master plan of evangelism. Let's stand together, shall we, and pray. Lots of uh, lost sheep around. Ask the Lord this week who he wants you to spend time with. Father, thank you for this uh, great call that you've given to us a way to make our our lives count and uh, none of us feel particularly adequate for this sort of thing and yet we thank you that our adequacy comes from you you're the one who's qualified us to be ministers of the new covenant thank you in jesus name amen